Gracious Father, you have led us on a journey the past uh, few weeks of looking at what is it that Jesus has called us to do and to be in this life. Uh, He's called us to be uh, a people of his word and a people of uh, the sacred text of scripture. He's called us, Lord, to take up the cross and to follow him. Uh, He's called us, Lord, to gather around his table, to share the bread and the cup together. And Father, in sharing that bread and cup to, to declare to the world that he is the one in whom we put our faith. He is the one who we believe is coming again. He is the hope of the world and the light of the world. So we come this morning gathering, Father, uh, both to hear that message, but also, Lord, uh, to give praise to you. Uh, Father, to thank you in the, uh, in the communion service as we pray. We thank you for all you have done throughout history and what you will do in the future. And so we come this morning, Father, with hearts filled with praise. We pray, Father, that, that uh, what our lips say, our hearts uh, will reflect. We pray, Father, that we will listen attentively to the voice of your spirit as you speak to us this morning. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who came to give himself for the sins of the world. In his name we pray, and amen. This text is probably familiar to you. uh, Paul uh, has an extensive discussion about uh, the Lord's Supper and communion and how the uh, people of Corinth, the church in Corinth, are uh, doing things there that are disturbing to him. And I I wanted to talk with you about that some this morning, about this idea that they were eating and drinking unworthily uh, and that 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 would result uh, in uh, they were eating and drinking unworthily to the damnation of themselves. That's a pretty strong thing. The idea that, that coming to the Lord's table can be such a dangerous proposition that somehow you could come unworthily and in, in participating uh, find yourself damned. Uh, those words don't quite mean what most people interpret them to mean. And that's one thing I'm going to share with you this morning. Uh, I had a lady in the church that I first served and... Uh, She had never, uh, she was in her 80s and had never come to the table of the Lord her whole life. Had been in church all of her life. But her her dad would always say to her on Sunday, he says, you know, if you go to that table and you're not worthy of being there, you will be damned. And she never felt worthy enough to go to the table. So we had extensive talks about that and prayed about it. And so uh, I was the first one to offer her the bread and the cup and for her to take it and to eat and to drink. So uh, this is a really personally an important passage to me. It's a, it's a crucial thing, this idea of who can come to the table and what is it that brings us to the table and who is it that owns that table. So I was uh, reading the other day and I was thinking about tables and coming to the table, uh, table meals and everything, and I came across this little story shared by a woman about uh, a dinner she was having uh, at her parents' home, and it was a typical noisy dinner, she said, everybody talking, and her dad kept uh, making off-topic comments as if he didn't know what they were talking about at the time, and he kept jumping in, and he would ask for things to be repeated, and finally she said to him, she said, Dad, you need a hearing aid, and he looked at her like she was crazy, and he said, what would I need a hand grenade for? <laughs> you know. 
but see, he was being sort of left out of the conversation, wasn't he? By, by that, by that challenge he had to his hearing, he wasn't fully able to participate in that table conversation going on there. And there are lots of ways in which we might get, get left out of something. I don't know if you've ever been at a family meal and they realized that there were too many adults to fit in at the adult table. So they said, hey, Bob, would you be a darling and go over and sit with the kids at the children's table? Have you ever, ever felt find excluded like they looked around the whole table and they said, the one person who we could do without at this table, that's Bob. You know? Have you ever gone to a restaurant and they say, we're sorry, we don't have enough tables for this size of a group? Uh, have, you, have you ever um, uh, gone someplace and just been told, no, sorry? I remember when I was, uh, I would have been nine years old because the movie Santa Claus Conquers the Martian came out in 1964. And uh, the reason I bring the name of that movie up is my brother and I were going to the first showing of the first movie at an indoor theater in Woodbridge, Virginia. Marumsco Plaza had their own Marumsco movie theater. And I was excited. And my little brother, uh, two and a half years younger than me, we, we go in there on our own. No parents with us. And we buy the tickets. And then we go up and, and, and look at the popcorn. But the popcorn was too expensive. I didn't have enough money for the popcorn. And so we walked out and went to G.C. Murphy's next door. And we, we got some candy with what we had. And we come back in. And they tell us we can't come in. That once you leave the theater, you need another ticket. And we cried. We cried, and finally they, they, they let us in. And we got to see the absolutely the dumbest movie in the history of mankind. And the, the, I'll give you the plot. Santa Claus and two children are kidnapped by the Martians. That's all you need to know. But it's kind of a cult classic. You could actually find it on TV occasionally and all too. But really, really stupid. Now, on another, another occasion, when I was a little bit younger than that, I was six years old, and I wasn't the same man of moral fortitude who you see standing before you now. Uh, I, but I lived in this little neighborhood of three streets on Cardinal Drive. I lived uh, called Garfield Estates up in uh, Woodbridge in northern Virginia. I remember one particular Saturday afternoon, a family down the street, they were having a birthday party for one of their children. And I was not invited to the party. My youngest brother and my older sister were invited to the party. But out of the three children, I was the one not invited to the party. In fact, as I looked out the window, I stood there watching Donnie and Eddie, my best friends, and other children in the neighborhood just walking up the street, going down to that house where the party was, And it seemed to me that every child in the world had been invited to that party except me. My mom had explained to me earlier in the day that I wouldn't be going. And the reason was that the mother of the little boy having the party was afraid that I would misbehave. Can you imagine? (laughs) That I wasn't going to behave myself. She didn't want me to ruin the birthday party for her son. And she probably she was right. But right or not, I've never forgotten the loneliness of that day. I've never forgotten how left out I felt watching my friends walk up that street. My heart was broken. And I I wondered, what is wrong with me? 
What is wrong with me? And I, and I, I think that today I have a lot of empathy for, for kids, especially those kids who tend to get left out, the kids who have kind of the trouble socializing and, you know, the ones, ones who break into the church in the middle of the service and come running up through and hug their grandma or, or <laughs> he made a touchdown yesterday. Oh, he made a touchdown yesterday. <laughs> That's my story too. Football was my salvation. But I do have, have a, a real feeling for these kids who just, just don't quite fit in because I felt like I didn't fit in a lot of times. And it was a struggle. And so, when we think about the times when kids are embarrassed or marginalized, there's a passage in Matthew, a story about these children being brought to Jesus. And it's kind of a brief little passage there, but it's powerful, and I think there's a lot that could be unpacked out of this passage. It says, Then the little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. And the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Now, it's a strong word there in the Greek, rebuked. It was, how dare you bring these little people to waste the time of our master. You see, they were really puffed up at this point, the disciples. People were seeking after their master. They were associated with him. Therefore, they were important. And they had power. They had power that allowed them, they felt, to say to these people, don't waste our master's time. And I believe that they probably said it in front of the children because people just didn't really care if children were hurt or not. They were saying, our master, our rabbi, our teacher, Jesus, doesn't have time. And you children aren't important to God. Now, I thank God that in the story that Jesus told those children that they were precious in God's sights, that they were heralds of his kingdom. Those children, not the adults around them, you can interpret from Jesus' words, were the best examples of the message that Jesus came to share with us about God's kingdom, what it was like. Jesus took the children and lifted them up, even above the adults. This aspect of human sin exhibited by Jesus' disciples, the desire to exclude those who in our pride we assume are inferior to us, is anathema to Jesus. Over and over in the Gospels, Jesus makes heroes out of the outcast. And the marginalized, a tax collector praying uh, for forgiveness in the corner of the temple, off to the side where no one will see him, is justified before God. While a self-righteous Pharisee's prideful prayer, thank you God that I'm not like that man, that I'm not a sinner. You know that prayer was ignored by God. An impoverished widow giving her last two coins to God is held up as an example of true sacrifice and generosity, while those who flaunt their wealth and make a great show of their giving and their superior status are condemned. And a despised Samaritan, saving the life of a stranger in dire need, stands in stark contrast to the religious leaders who should have offered assistance but instead leave the beaten man lying in the dust. To bleed to death. In the Gospels, Jesus constantly chooses the losers to be the winners and the last to be first. 
The exclusion of others was also anathema to the Apostle Paul. He knew the shame of his sin. He knew the glory of God's grace and forgiveness. In today's scripture text from 1 Corinthians 11, Paul has a dire warning for the wealthy members of the Corinthian church who are neglecting and excluding the poorer members of the church from the Lord's table, just as the disciples had attempted to exclude the children from Jesus' presence. Paul's message, if you, if you read between the lines there and the spirit and, and, and the anger in them, he's telling these people, stop it. This isn't what our Lord taught and died for. In Corinth, people were consumed with social status. It was the wealthiest nation in Greece. The attitudes of exclusiveness and pride had creeped into that Corinthian church to where they brought those social standards into the Lord's Supper. In that culture, the wealthy were given the best food and the best wine at a dinner. So when the church in Corinth gathered for the Lord's Supper, Paul observed, they came with that same cultural reasoning. Why waste your best wine on the poor? Why treat people who don't matter as equals? They violated the unity of the church by not inviting the poor to sit with them during the Lord's Supper. They had their own tables and their own places. And they came and they drank the wine and the bread for themselves and left little or nothing for the people who needed it the most. The Apostle Paul was so incensed, he asked with incredulity in verse 22 of the 11th chapter, Do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? You're humiliating them. Do you not see that they are made in God's image just as you are? That Jesus died for them on the cross just as he died for you? Do you not know that God's grace and his forgiveness are just as available to them as it is to you? You know, I sometimes wonder, I was thinking about this between the services this morning. If we were honest with ourselves... When we see people from other nations, especially those nations that are oppressed in this world, the nations that are the neediest, the nations who, who don't have the same skin color as you might have or the majority of Americans would have, the people who don't speak the same language, the people who don't live at the same level, if we don't sometimes just have a little bit of pride in our hearts that says, Lord, thank you that we're not like those people. Thank you, Lord, that we live here and not there. And in doing that, we reduce those people because of their circumstances and their location, their language, their appearance, to being less than us, not as worthy as us. And maybe somewhere inside ourselves we say the reason God has blessed us so much is because we deserve it. And they don't. That was the attitude that Paul was fighting there in Corinth. And we're coming this morning to the Lord's table. At times in my ministry, I've heard people say that they don't believe you should come to the Lord's table unless you are without sin, unless you are worthy. Does anyone really think that the same Jesus who was criticized and ridiculed for eating and spending time with sinners, that this same Jesus does not invite all sinners to his table? Now note that I say 
all sinners. It's not that we're saying we're coming because somehow we're no longer sinners or somehow we're, we're good enough to come, but because Jesus accepts us as we are when we come and he offers us his righteousness and his salvation through his blood. He offers us the opportunity to come and to repent as we do in our liturgy, in the opening of, the, of our communion service. We always come confessing and asking God's pardon for our sins. But it's an interesting thing to look back on the disciples who were at that original Last Supper with Jesus. The basis for this meal today, they were self-centered. In the scripture stories, we see them as cowards. We see them as selfish. They even at times would say things that pointed out that among this, these 12 who should have been tightly knit together and looking out for each other, but there were jealousies. There were the two brothers who have their mom come to Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, would you allow my two sons to sit next to you when you come into your kingdom? When the kingdom starts, can they sit next to you? Not any of the others, but my two sons. And then Peter at one point says, You know, everybody else may abandon you, but Lord, not me. I'm special. I'm different. I'm better than that. And we know that Peter showed he wasn't better than that. He denies Jesus three times. His, his courage waned and he, he, he gave in to his weakness. We see all the disciples had particular weaknesses. Doubting Thomas, Judas, who betrays Jesus, but is at the table the night when Jesus breaks that bread and shares that cup. When we created the the No Pay Cafe at the community center, we knew that there would be homeless men and homeless women. We knew there would be ex-cons. We knew that there would be those who would be mentally challenged who would come into that cafe. We knew that some of them might be rude to us. And some have been. Some of them would be crude their appearance would be less than what we would have liked. Some of them would come and want to take all the food that was free there. So we had to put up a sign and restrict how much you could take. We knew it would be a challenge. But we also knew that some of those people would become our friends. Some of them would become volunteers at the community center. Some of them would come in and begin to view those little tables in the community center as an extension of Jesus' welcome to his table. That they would feel, whether it was in words or just in the way we acted, that there's something different here and there's something different about these people. And I want to be part of that. Just the other day, uh, uh, one of the men there talked to me about how he was just having a conversation with somebody. And they said, well, I don't have any friends. Nobody cares about me. And he said, he looked at him and he said, he said, you've got to be kidding. Uh, he's kind of an in-your-face kind of guy, very blunt guy. He says, you come to this cafe all the time and all these people here, they're your friends. This is, this is, I didn't have any friends before I came here, but I've got friends now. And he goes, he goes over to aisle 7 every Sunday and, and he'll be at the table of the Lord this morning, even though he has a record. Even though he's had a lot of problems in life, he'll be there at the Lord's table. In 1747, Charles Wesley, the brother of John, 
He was the great poet of the Methodist movement. A lot of our songs in our hymnal are written by Charles Wesley. Usually, he would write 25 or so verses to a song. We, we, we put in four, three, four, five verses into the hymnal. But he has this great song, Come Sinners to the Gospel Feast, making it clear that the gospel feast that we come to, the feast of good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, is for sinners. And there's a couple of verses there when you get down 22, 23, back down at the end. It's interesting how he writes these little snippets, 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 over and over, trying to say in the best way what he's trying to say. And he says this, Sinners, my gracious Lord receives. My gracious Lord receives sinners. And then he describes the sinners. Harlots, publicans, which is a old uh, New Testament word for an extortionist. Harlots and extortionists and thieves, drunkards and all the hellish crew, I have a message now for you. And then the next verse, the worst upon my supper press, come on in, press on in to my table, to my supper. Monsters of daring wickedness, tell them my grace for all is free. They cannot be too bad for me. I love that. I was too bad for that birthday party to sit at the birthday table and eat the cake. But Jesus says, oh, but you're not too bad for me. You'd never be too bad for me. Because I died on the cross for the sins of a world. Despite the fact that it was the world that hung me on that cross. And I forgave you. That's why it's good news. That's why this is the gospel feast we come today. And I want to tell you, all you uh, hellish crew out there at Verona today, You're welcome to come to the gospel feast. And amen. Father, as we go forth this day, we pray that we will go forth in the light of your son, Jesus Christ. We, Father, pray that we will, as we encounter people along the way, that we will not judge them according to the outward appearance because that's that's what human beings look at. But, Father, we know that you look upon the heart. We pray that we would be a people who could uh, see the hearts of people. When they are hurting, when they are in need, Father, hearts that uh, may be dedicated to you and seeking to have fellow travelers in this life as they follow Jesus Christ. We pray that in all things we would glorify you, your son Jesus, and that we would work for your kingdom. In his name we go forth, and amen.